This episode of The Dig is sponsored by the listeners who support us on Patreon and by the University of California Press. One title that I think listeners might find interesting is Terror in the Mind of God, The Global Rise of Religious Violence by Mark Jurgensmeyer. Militant Islamists get a lot of attention in the U.S., but a lot of people around the world commit violence in the name of God. Terror in the Mind of God, now in its fourth edition, analyzes terrorism related to European Christians who oppose Muslim immigrants, American Christians who support abortion clinic bombings, Muslims in the Middle East associated with the rise of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Hamas, Israeli Jews who support the persecution of Palestinians, and more. Terror in the Mind of God, The Global Rise of Religious Violence, out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm recording from Providence, Rhode Island. What's the matter with Appalachia? Many liberal elites think they know the answer. Since Trump's campaign first took off, the economically devastated mountain range has become a symbol of all that is wrong with red state America, a place replete with guns, bigotry, and pickup trucks that proudly fly the Confederate flag. There is indeed a lot wrong with Appalachia, but what's most wrong is this, a region where people for decades waged amongst the most militant labor struggles in American history has been devastated by coal company greed, automation, shifts in global commodity markets, and, of course, by Republican reaction and neoliberal malign neglect. It goes without saying that opposing bigotry must be central for leftists. But the left must also fight the liberal elite proclivity to write Appalachia off. Building a multiracial working class movement is integral to fighting racism. By contrast, neoliberalism foments racism by paving the way for a right-wing politics that tells white people that people of color are going to steal their share of a shrinking pie. Conservative elites, of course, have no plans for the region save for increasing marginalization, despite NASCAR dad performances to the contrary. Today, my guest is Sarah Jones, social media editor at The New Republic. Sarah grew up in Bristol, Virginia, in the state's southwest, just across the Tennessee line, and she is truly one of the sharpest young left-wing writers around. Her writing, among other things, skewers the Democratic establishment and Clinton feminism and explores the possibilities for left-wing revival in Appalachia and across the country. Sarah Jones, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. I'm going to start on a more Terry Gross note, which I don't usually do with all respect to Terry Gross. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) you grew up in a fundamentalist Christian household and went to a college um, that pledges unwavering commitment to the inerrancy and authority of scripture. Then you became a left-wing feminist journalist. (laughs) What happened? A lot of things happened. Um, So it turns out that going to a fundamentalist Christian college is a really good way to not be a fundamentalist Christian anymore, um, which, you know, was not my intention when I originally signed up to go there. Um, It was, it was a long, it was a long process. Uh, I had a lot of, I had a lot of questions when I started school. And I think, I think that I kind of hoped that the school would help answer those questions. And instead I found it like a very oppressive and restrictive environment. Um, and became an atheist, as you do, 
<laughs> and kind of <laughs> <laughs> as one does. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I I kind of kept my head down until I graduated. Um, I was always sort of left leaning, but you know it was such a complicated dual process going on at the same time where. I was trying to figure out what I believed about everything, including politics. Um, so I wouldn't say that I, I kind of had a coherent political philosophy so until I was pretty decently in my 20s. And it happens to be very left-wing. So that, that's where we are now. And what were the books or media sources or human beings that helped you develop a left-wing political philosophy when you were brought up on on such conservative ideas? So I had the interesting fortune of of being in Ohio. My school was in Ohio. Um, When Kasich and sort of the Republicans in the state legislature were simultaneously attacking abortion rights and collective bargaining rights. Um, So you had the kind of the attack on collective bargaining rights going on at the same time as like the first push for what's called the heartbeat bill, which if it had been passed would have, would have banned abortion um, as soon as a heartbeat's detected. So that's way before most women know that they're even pregnant. Um, So it was sort of a radicalizing moment to me. I'd been through some traumatic experiences. So uh, the idea of bodily autonomy was really important to me. And I didn't know as much about unions or kind of about labor politics at all, despite being from Southwest Virginia. Um, so that was that was an educational moment for me. And then uh, later on, I did a year at Goldsmiths University of London at the Center for Cultural Studies, which is a very, very left-leaning department. Um, so that's that's when I met Karl Marx. And it was it was very beneficial for me, um, just sort of kind of it helped me make sense of things that I'd already lived and experienced. I'd say. You've written a bit about Bristol, Virginia, where you grew up. Tell me about the town and what the economic conditions and just everyday life are, and how people relate to politics there. Right. So I've lived my whole life in the South. I was born in North Carolina, and then my family moved to Washington County, Virginia, where Bristol is when I was when I was pretty young. Um, so we had kind of a strange existence there in that we were fundamentalist Christians, and I, I was homeschooled uh, for a, a lot of my time there and slowly kind of set apart from the rest of the county. Um, but eventually I did go to public school, and that's when I really started to learn a bit more about um, sort of the average experience of people who live there. And obviously it's very, very poor and very working class. Um, you kind of have the county seat, which is the town of Abingdon, which is where if anyone has money, that's kind of where they live. And even then it's sort of relatively speaking compared to the rest of the area. Um, so it's very much like a lot of people kind of, it's it's substance. There's sort of, you know, a lot of people who rely on food stamps and welfare um, it was hit hard by the decline of manufacturing and it's sort of on the edges of the coal field. So like a lot of people from like the more coal counties in, in Southwest Virginia, so say like Buchanan County or Dickinson County, uh, end up kind of migrating to Washington County just to look for work because the mines are obviously in significant decline. Um, so it's, it's sort of like this, this ripple effect that's been happening throughout the region. And in Bristol, they're, they're trying to like sort of brand it as a tourist destination, which is true for a lot of places in Appalachia right now. And I am not convinced, you know, 
it, it's just, I don't know how sustainable it is or if it's even going to ever replace the role of coal in the area, but that's sort of where it's at. You've written that in the rise of Donald Trump, Appalachia has become a kind of Rosetta Stone for Blue America to interpret that most mysterious of species, the economically precarious white voter. Mm-hmm. Why do you think Appalachia, um, why do you think Appalachia in particular has become such a big symbol for political commentators during and since the election? I think it's a manifestation, actually, of a, of a much older phenomenon um, where people like academics like Ron Eller have written about this before, where um, Avalacha seems to sort of serve this function for elite whites in this country. Um, it seems to, you know, it's it's a place that makes them feel better about themselves. Um, it's a project when they want to take on a project, um, but they don't spend very much time. I don't, I wouldn't say like from my personal perspective, they don't spend very much time actually like educating themselves about the area or the situation it's in until it's time for an election. Uh, so I think you saw that happen in a bit, you know, it's, I, I saw it start to happen in 2016 and then it became really extreme and pronounced when people realized that, you know, Trump did have a base of support in the area. And of course we know now, um, you know, that most of his support didn't come from Appalachia. It came from the suburbs. Um, but that would require, you know, kind of the people writing the media pieces to interrogate <laughs> their own their own circles, like far more closely. And it's much easier to go after, say, you know, the hillbilly who doesn't know any better and just keeps voting against his own interests. It's that's how it's always worked. Yeah, I mean, uh, on on the one hand, there there this focus on uh, white workers in deindustrialized cities and on. Uh, rednecks in Appalachia has like obscured the fact that Trump won a lot of support from plenty of regular conservative wealthy Republicans, including, you know, idiosyncratic billionaires like Robert Mercer. Um, Mm -hmm. But his rhetoric did speak to a lot of people in Appalachia and the Rust Belt. Why do you think that was? I don't think people who aren't from the area who have, or who even haven't spent very much time maybe reading about the area. I don't think they have any comprehension. I don't think they understand how disenfranchised many people in the area feel. Now that's like some of that, you know, perception, but a lot of that is also just reality. We're talking about people who, who are accustomed to making pretty decent wages at the coal mines, thanks to the efforts of unions. And then, you know, the coal mines have gone away. And when I say there's nothing in many of these places, like, I mean, there's absolutely nothing. Like you have towns that are just threatening to disappear because there is no work and people are very angry about that. And I don't think that necessarily means that they always diagnose the, the roots of their problems correctly, but they're not wrong that there is, that there are problems. And so Trump, you know, I think it was his anger that spoke to people the most. And I think people, many of them were very much desperate to believe that somebody could come in and like bring back the coal mines and and reopen them and bring back jobs and manufacturing. And who better to do that than America's most famous boss. And of course, you know, they're not to blame for the fact that he is America's most famous boss, you know? Um, And I think that's a lot of it. I don't want to discount the role of race either. There's a huge problem with racism in Appalachia, as there is elsewhere in the country. Um, But I I would argue that in a lot of these places, and, you know, Appalachia is specifically a place that used to be this democratic stronghold. It really is. It really is economic anxiety. It's not a joke. 
Um, one popular version of uh, what's wrong with Appalachia, of course, has been offered by J.D. Vance, the author of the book Hillbilly Elegy. He has been selected as the official interpreter of the region for people who don't live there. It's a pretty atrocious book. Um, can you lay out the arguments that he makes and what he gets wrong? Yeah, absolutely. More than happy. Um, so, <laughs> I, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> so my my reading of his book, uh, reading that a lot of a lot of people from from Central Appalachia share people from outside Central Appalachia too, for that matter. Is it's just sort of an updated version of this whole you know pull yourself up by your bootstrap. He sort of nods at there being like broader systemic failures that have helped create sort of this this economic dysfunction. Um, but he never really explores them in much depth. And he just writes sometimes with such disdain about the people that he grew up around. Um, very much this whole idea that, you know, he, he talks about how, you know, they need a different kind of religion and there's this like crass, like crisis of masculinity and really sort of paints this picture of like a sort of monolithic hillbilly culture um, that is feeding the problem and making it worse. Um, so he claims that he he's not influenced by Moynihan, but I don't see how you can't read the book and not see the echoes of Moynihan in it. Um, it's just culture. It's just culture of poverty missed by another name. That's it. Yeah, you wrote that it's uh, little more than a list of myths about welfare queens repackaged as a primer on the white working class. Yeah, yeah, and I still I still stand by that. Um, you know, he a lot of it is, is kind of incoherent as as well. Like he, you know, he doesn't. Oh God, it's complicated. But he seems to think you know people are too dependent on government, and yet he wouldn't necessarily go so far as to say that government has no role whatsoever. So you can read the book and not really come away with a clear picture of what he thinks the the, kind of the solution ought to be. But it is very clear that he does have a lot of disdain for people who are on welfare and how they're using that welfare specifically. Um, So again, like this is, this is very, very old stuff that's just been repackaged and people ate it up. It's it's important to note, I think um, given that he's been such a celebrity amongst liberals that he writes for the that Vance writes for the National Review and during the primary before I think Trump had made it clear to the oligarchy that he would actively support an oligarchic agenda a lot of conservatives at places like the National Review suddenly wrote all these hit pieces on poor white people uh, the poor white people that for a long time they had uh, pretended they had NASCAR dad solidarity with Um, (laughs) <laughs> why why do you think that um such a conservative argument is so attractive it's obvious why it's attractive to conservatives but why why to liberal elites yeah that's a great question i think again it is sort of this phenomenon where you know the spectacle of the hillbilly makes these people feel better about themselves and they can sort of judge themselves against it and say you know look at least i'm not that bad you know, I, I don't live in a racist place. My friends aren't racist. You know, this is where racism is, and it's a form of magical thinking. Um, and it's very comforting to people, but it's just not it's just not accurate. You know, there is no monolithic hillbilly culture, and racism is everywhere, and that's sort of the grim reality of it. Um, but it's a lot easier to go after the hillbilly than sort of interrogate your own circles, and I think liberals are just as guilty of that often as conservatives are. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, something that I constantly repeat is that many wealthy white liberals organize their entire lives around not sending their children to school with poor black children. Um, yet yeah. then, yeah. <laughs> yet then it's the uh, then it's the rednecks who have bad ideas in their head who are the true racists, rather than the people who actually um, express racism through power that they have. Right. I, I think, yeah. I think your point also is really important um, about the way that these analyses of, uh, if we can call them that, these bigotries about working class and poor white people echo um, stories that are told about poor black people and why they're poor. For example, Charles Murray, who's very well known for writing the racist pseudoscientific book, The Bell Curve, two decades back, more recently, just a few years ago, wrote a book arguing that working class white people um, in Philadelphia in particular were morally backward for a lot of the same uh, putting forward the same sort of culture of poverty argument. And it, it, it seems like it's not just that they come from the same sort of that the analyses come from the same sort of philosophical root, but that the sort of it's telling that the the. That that racism um, in is used to justify policies like welfare reform and mass incarceration that ultimately harm poor and working class people, including working class white people, um, in Appalachia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's absolutely true, um, and I think it's you know very telling that so many liberals might otherwise sustain Charles Murray, but when his ideas get repackaged into something like hillbilly elegy. You know, they kind of suddenly have not really a problem with it at all. And it's just further evidence, as far as I'm concerned, that many of these people, you know, one of the reasons they're looking and so desperate to find sensible conservatives like J.D. Vance to elevate is because they actually agree with them far more than they agree with the left. And if that means throwing poor whites under under the bus, so to speak, then then they're willing to do that. Well, and since since he's from there, he's allowed to say horrible things about people uh, who live where he's from in the same way that for the same reason that conservatives love Ben Carson and Herman Cain, you know? Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah absolutely. It's respectability politics. That's all. You mentioned before that that one one purpose that this beating up on people from Appalachia serves for liberal elites is to sort of dis- hold them uh, blameless for for issues of racism. <clears throat> I think a related thing that it does is that it holds the political project that they support, neoliberal capitalism, blameless for the problems that uh, are, are hitting Appalachia and racism and the rise of Donald Trump. But you have Mother Jones's Kevin Drum, Vox's Dylan Matthews, you know, very serious people in liberal punditry, constantly insisting that culture is the only way to explain support for Trump. Um, the implication of that is is not just that racism is this primordial, ahistorical sentiment lodged in poor white people's lizard brains, though that is one implication and a really stupid one. Um, it also implies that you know this redneck culture is at the root of all evil and gives and gives the 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 economic system a pass. Yeah, I, I do think that's fair. I mean, Appalachia's problem is capitalism. That That's always been the problem. Appalachia is in the situation it is because of capitalism. And, you know, that's true for the rest of the country as well. And, like, I, you see a lot of people shying away from, from that 
acknowledgement, but that's the only, like that, that is the answer as far as I'm concerned. And if you aren't willing to grapple with that, then, you know, of course you're going to sort of depend on these myths about there being some sort of like backwards culture that you can sort of isolate and then blame for, for social ills of any nature. This episode of The Dig is sponsored by the listeners who support us on Patreon and by the University of California Press. One title that I think listeners might find interesting is We Demand, The University and Student Protests by Roderick A. Ferguson, available now as an ebook. Student movements fought for the university to serve women, minority, immigrants, indigenous people, and more. Today, the university is fighting back, putting resources towards STEM education and cutting humanities and interdisciplinary programs. This has had a devastating effect on the pursuit of knowledge and on interdisciplinary programs born from the hard work and effort of an earlier generation. This is not only a reactionary move against the social advances since the 60s and 70s, but part of the larger threat of anti-intellectualism in the United States. We demand the university and student protests by Roderick A. Ferguson. Out now from University of California Press. Hey, this is Bosco Sankara, editor of Jacobin. Uh, I know everyone has a podcast these days, but the Dig and Dan Denver are really, really good. And Dan needs your help to help pay the people who work on the show and uh, reproduce their labor power. And as every Marxist knows, it's very important. Uh, To support the show, go to patreon.com and look up the Dig. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Thanks, and I uh, hope you enjoy the show. One thing that I think doesn't get discussed enough about Appalachia is the history of, of left-wing labor militancy in the region and how that might inform rebuilding the left there. And relatedly, um, Bernie's decisive win in the West Virginia primary, I think, offered some really remarkable lessons for for how um, a left project might move forward. But but most commentators did everything possible to attribute his win to anything other than what it was, which I think was um, that economic populism holds a real appeal in places like Appalachia. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And of course, like this is all... Yes, some of it is speculation, but I also don't like. I don't think anyone should have been at all surprised that Bernie Sanders won West Virginia, and he did win some. You know, I can't remember the names of the counties right off the top of my head, but I do remember kind of looking at the polling data and like he did win some like the some of the most isolated rural counties in Virginia as well in the coal fields. And again, I don't think that's an accident at at all. I think you know you could really see his experience as an activist sort of having a clear result there. And this very plain spoken populism really appealed to people because again, like I tapped into like the grievances and the resentment they felt. Um, And the problem isn't that people feel grievances or that they have resentment. It's a matter of directing it. And I think, you know, the best thing Sanders did was sort of start this conversation about what real, you know, sort of progressive economic populism looks like. And I hope that that will sort of, reseed itself in places like West Virginia um, and sort of start to to fill the void that's been left kind of behind by organized labor and by the Democratic Party itself. Do you see that sort of organizing taking place in uh, places like Bristol, Virginia now, or is it too early to to tell? In Bristol, not as much. 
Um, in West Virginia, I know that there have been some chapters of Democratic Socialists of America starting. It's very early days. Uh, I think it's important to remember that organizing was always going on in uh, in, in the region. Um, that often didn't make its way into the stories that got reported about the region during the election, mm-hmm. but it's there and it always has been. So it's just a matter of, you know, again, and being very early, but whether or not this sort of momentum that exists can continue to take root and take off. Um, And then you have a secondary problem, which is the Democratic Party, and whether or not sort of they're going to support more progressive candidates if they appear on the scene in the the region running for like local offices or national offices for that matter. Um, So we'll see. I'm tentatively optimistic. The unionization rate in in mining fell from 2.5 percent in fell to 2.5 percent in 2016, down from more than 40 percent two decades ago. And Republicans have been able to do something remarkable in places like like West Virginia and throughout the region. And this is something obviously that Trump capitalized on big time, which is reframing the dynamic by pitting coal owners and miners together against the federal government and its so-called war on coal instead of mm-hmm. coal miners versus their horrible greedy bosses which is the way things the way political economic life was organized for a very long time in Appalachia why do you think republicans have been so successful in framing these coal bosses as champions of miners and why do you think the Democratic Party has allowed that to happen? I again, I, I feel like this comes back to the to one root, which is desperation. Um, and if you're afraid that your jobs are going to go away, and like it's important to keep in mind, first of all, that coal mining paid pretty well. It was generally considered a ticket to a, a middle class life, albeit with serious health concerns. Um, but it's also one that people were able to pass down from generation to generation. Like that's why you have like whole families who ended up working in the mines. Um, so it really was this really sort of economic bedrock for these communities. And when it started to erode, that was terrifying for people. And I think it became easier for them to like, I wouldn't say like feel some sympathy for the coal boss. I mean, they haven't, they haven't forgotten their history, but just sort of the sense of desperation, like why would I attack the person who may or may not be responsible for my job staying or leaving? Um, And the Republicans as a reactionary party are very good at tapping into that fear and that desperation. Simultaneously, I think Democrats themselves in the area are very aware that this fear exists and it's real and that, you know, they're not going to win office unless they cater to it. Trump has proposed um, major cuts that would impact Appalachia pretty severely, including, and you've written about this, the Appalachian uh, Regional Commission. Tell me about how you've seen Republican policies impact the region in more in, in these more concrete ways that, that aren't often talked about. Well, the Appalachian Regional Commission was a big one. I haven't seen it reported, and I, haven't, I need to look into it myself. I think it. I think it survived the budget that has event like actually got passed. Uh, and he's not the first Republican president to try to to try to cut the Appalachian Regional Commission, like Reagan tried it as well. Um, so it's. I, I would say kind of the worst legacy, and there are a lot of them. Um, but the Republicans' sort of fetish for deregulation is sort of the answer to the country's ills has hugely affected Appalachia. And, 
um, been very, very beneficial to the coal industry, the expensive people who already live there. Um, and of course, right to work in the state of Kentucky. Um, that was one of the first things that Bevan pushed through and that that's going to be a disaster for what's left of the, for the unions in the state. Um, so those are, those are two big ones. Um, but just this general antipathy for any sort of, of, you know, strong welfare state, any sort of like public funding that communities actually need to thrive and grow, like these constant Republican attacks on that funding have been disastrous. And they've also been very, very good at sort of reframing the argument similarly to how they did for coal. It's like, you know, you know this is handouts, you, you know, people are becoming dependent on government and this is bad for small business and this is bad for economic diversification. And I would argue that's very much not true, but, you know, it, it's, it's, they've been very successful in promoting it and it's been a disaster for the area. Do you think that the left could be successful by taking big government programs that a lot of people avail themselves of in the region, whether it's the Appalachian Regional Commission or Medicaid expansion and mm-hmm. championing those as things that are that are good for people and that are a example of why big government is sometimes pretty great? Yeah, I do think that that's important. And I think you can see this sort of as a legacy of a failure of political education on the part of the Democratic Party itself mm-hmm. um, and a legacy to deunionization in the area. So like people don't understand quite what the government does for them, what what its function is, um, and they feel very disenfranchised and very alienated from the government. And so it's very easy to sort of be antagonistic from the government to kind of get this attitude where you're like, you know, well, what has it done for me? I don't, I don't want more government in my life. It's just made things worse. Um, and I really do think that it's important for any left of center party, if the Democratic Party wants to be the opposition party, this is a this is a good way for them to start is by enthusiastically championing big government. Like this is how you got all these programs that have benefited your lives, and you deserve that, and you're entitled to that. Uh, and these programs are important, and we're going to defend them and expand them. And I think that's going to be really important for the party going forward. Unfortunately. Um, they become increasingly antagonistic to doing that themselves. So, You wrote a really interesting piece recently arguing that Trump and Republicans subscribe to a contemporary form of eugenics or a political philosophy, at least that echoes uh, eugenics strongly. And I think that is right on. And it also seems to be popular amongst liberal elites. Um, Jonathan Chait, a few months back, wrote a piece uh, arguing that Trump voters are just idiots, um, which I think is actually a eugenical term, if I'm (laughs) uh, not mistaken. Um, And I think you correctly suggest something, which is that eugenics is a necessary result of this current economic setup um, because in a supposedly colorblind meritocracy, if the system isn't the cause of rampant inequality, then it must stem from differences in people's innate capacities. Um, do, do you think that that people in there's a way to expose the sort of eugenic undercurrents to to voters? Um, and I'm asking this not just in terms of Appalachia, but but generally speaking, <laughs> I think I think they already realize it to a certain extent. And that they feel resentment when they're called idiots, right? And that, you know, sort of gets wrapped into this 
mythos of the smug liberal that is often accurate, not always accurate, but often accurate. Um, so they are aware of it, even if they aren't necessarily aware that, you know, there was a eugenics movement or, you know, that it specifically targeted people and like, you know, poverty was considered evidence of imbecility, right. And could have gotten you sterilized or institutionalized. They might not know that, but you know, there is this resentment there. They realize that there is some sort of inequity there. Um, and I, I think too, like you did see a big backlash to, you know, all these iterations of Trump care as people, you know, it's becoming much easier for people to buy it as a form of eugenics because it so blatantly targets low income people and people with disabilities and people who may become disabled. And so it's kind of becoming this inescapable conclusion where I don't see how you can kind of look at, first of all, the policies of the Republican Party and reach any other conclusion. Um, but from my perspective, I don't see how you can sort of escape the conclusion that eugenics is an offspring of capitalism. Now, whether or not most more people will kind of go that go that far, I don't I don't know. But I I think that's sort of where I'd like people to get. Jonathan Chait was rather brazen about it, but but typically I think neoliberals and and conservatives um, like to be more subtle about uh, why they are repealing Obamacare because when they when they say exactly what they mean and what their true motivations are, they come out like this Republican congressman who recently said that he believes that healthy people deserve lower premiums because they lead because they lead quote unquote good lives. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a really interesting and telling statement that he made by putting it sort of in these terms of morality, which is exactly what sort of the the first proponents of of eugenics did as well. Uh, And again, like he may not have done that deliberately, but his views appear to be identical. So, of course, you know, makes sense that he used the same language. But that was very interesting. And I think you can see that reflected in the the Republican Party at large. And again, like even in this kind of liberal reluctance to – you know, sort of push for a healthcare system that recognizes that everyone has an essential and alienable right to healthcare, no matter how they live, whether you like their lifestyle or not. It seems clear that there's a understandable resentment around being talked down to by liberal elites that animates a lot of white conservatism throughout the country. How much of that do you think is a response to things that liberal elites like Jonathan Chait actually say? And to what extent do you think it's been ginned up by Fox News and right wing radio and before that, well before that, Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm not sure that it's possible to quantify how much of either that it is, except I do think it's a mix of both. You know, I I think there is this tendency towards smugness um, that people are reacting to. And I also think like you have to account for the influence of Fox news, this very influential, very wealthy news outlet that's effectively pushing out propaganda all the time. Um, And that undeniably has an influence and sort of kind of contributes to this, you know, toxic mess that we're looking at right now. Um, so, yeah, I do think it's it's really a mix of both. I guess my, my warning to liberals is, you know, you should also take that into account when you're going on TV and when you're writing these pieces. And that it's possible to, like, criticize people without necessarily resorting to certain terms or, or certain idioms that contribute to making the problem worse. 
And and what do you think those those the the terms and idioms that piss people off the most when they hear them are? I I don't see any need to like refer to people as idiots or imbeciles or fools. I I think, and I know that sounds a little bit precious, right? Because sometimes people do believe <laughs> idiotic, crazy things, and like I'm very frustrated myself with many of the people that I grew up with. And if I were a person of color, I can only imagine how much more exponentially frustrated that I would be. So I, I don't want to come across like I'm not sympathetic to that or that I don't think about that because it is a frustration, uh, a very real frustration. And I, I don't blame people for expressing that and for being angry, frankly. Um, that this, These are even conversations that we have to have under President Trump. You know, it's a crazy situation. Um but I, I wish that people would take the time to really think about the way that they're communicating their political messaging. And I wish that they would take sort of the context of certain regions into account. Um, I do think, you know, you know, I just I guess I would ask them sort of what it, what is it that you're actually trying to accomplish with these pieces that you're publishing or with your TV spots? You know, and if it's just to make yourself feel good, then okay, then just call people idiots all you want. But if you want to accomplish something else, like if you want to promote maybe some form of progressive economic populism, what many of us refer to as socialism, like I just, I I would question that that's the best way to go about that. Even if you're a liberal, right, and, and you wouldn't, you, you're not maybe asking for such sweeping reforms as I would like to see. Um, I would ask you to think about whether or not, you know, you think that you're actually going to accomplish that. I think there's this prevalent idea that expressing one's disapproval and denouncing something that is bad counts as politics. Yeah, I think that's true, right? And like, I think that's like a function of what we, an excess of what we call call culture, isn't it? Like, we we think that we've we've committed some sort of activist gesture by by pointing out that a bad thing is bad, and I guess it is an activist gesture to a certain extent, but it really kind of seems to end there. And if your goal is like, if you want to do politics, right? If you if there's a political project and like a coherent political project that you are explicitly like trying to support and promote and get other people to sign on to, then you can't end there. Like there has to be a next step. So we need to be asking ourselves what that next step is going to be. And how do we talk about the, the politics that are important to us? It seems like a reflection of a certain excesses in call-out culture and also um, seems to be grow, seems to grow out of the, the faulty premise that economic, an economic populist program necessarily requires setting so-called social issues to the side. Yeah, that's a very strange conflict that's been manufactured. And I I don't pretend to understand it because I don't like it just seems so obviously wrong to me that you have to sacrifice social issues in order to promote economic populism. I mean, that's what conservatives think that you should do for sure. I mean, that's what that was Donald Trump's campaign. But, you know, for those of us on the left, it's it's just a very strange accusation as if, a you know, socialist feminism doesn't exist or that black socialists don't exist. And that, you know, as if abortion rights and anti-racism haven't been part of that project for a very long time. So it's it's very weird to me. It just seems like kind of a feint to avoid sort of acknowledging that there is something wrong with a system that has benefited certain people. And just the notion that things like racism can be fought without an economic justice 
platform. I mean, the left won't necessarily convince people, everyone right away at least, on guns, gay rights, abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean downplaying those issues. I think, I think what Sanders showed is that if you give people something economic to fight for, they made it might at least decide to not prioritize um, guns, gays, abortion so much, and then that's more in the short, tor- short, and short and medium term, and then perhaps in the long run, creating spaces for white, black, Latino, Asian, queer, straight, working class people to work together on economic justice, class struggle issues. It, it, it could create space for white people to actually reconsider some of their those prejudices. Um, what certainly doesn't convince white people to reexamine those prejudices is leaving uh, them to the Republican Party. Yeah, I just I've never found the arguments against a more pro- populist economic platform to be per- persuasive at all. So, like, you know, let's say, you know, of course, like it's not going to solve racism, right? Like it's not going to eradicate racism overnight, but you're at least removing one reason for people to vote for Donald Trump. And I, I can't see that as a bad thing. That's, that's one reason. The second is just, it benefits everyone. It's not really about these, the specific population of voters that you may or may not have certain feelings towards. It's about policies that benefit everyone in the country. And that will disproportionately benefit people of color who comprise most members of the working class. Um, that's who 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 will benefit the most. So again, like I just I don't find any sort of persuasive argument that we should sort of de-emphasize class or that we should de-emphasize economic issues and that we somehow don't care about social issues unless we do that. It's just not persuasive. The it's particularly odd to see these arguments coming from figures of the um, aligned with the Democratic establishment that for years made a case that the Democratic Party had to put up blue dog Democrats in more conservative rural districts. Um, and these were Democrats that weren't necessarily so populist or left on economics. They were just really shitty on social issues. Yeah, they were often very fiscally conservative, and they just ha- also happened to be conservative on social issues. And for for many years now, we've been told that that's who is going to win in in these areas. Like we have to settle for a Joe Manchin. Nobody but a Joe Manchin can win in West Virginia. Um, it's a very odd pivot for the Democratic Party if you look at its history, and I I think you can see that this tactic obviously isn't working. And yet, you know, I don't see a lot of evidence that party leadership, at least for the most part, understands that this is a problem and that they need to change it in the future there's still kind of this pushback and this insistence that, you know, we need we need the Joe Mansions of the world in order to win these these conservative areas. And yet these are the same sort of corners of the Democratic Party that argue that Bernie Kratz are gonna abandon civil rights and gay rights and abortion rights. Yeah. It's remarkable. <laughs> which is yeah, which is crazy to me because I mean, for so many reasons for so many reasons it's crazy to me. But like he he you know what he is pro-choice and i you know very adamantly very enthusiastically vocally pro-choice and he still won the the state of west virginia over hillary clinton so you know clearly it's not it's not sort of the guaranteed loss that we've all been told it was um so and again like you you have a populist who did extremely well in kansas and almost succeeded in flipping his district 
you have a, a Sanders-style populist who's, who's giving his Republican challenger a, a run for his money, a real run for his money in Montana. And I hope people are paying attention to that, and I hope that they're understanding sort of what these races actually mean for the Democratic Party. Hey, this is Dan Denver, the guy who poses questions to all our brilliant guests. I also need to ask you for your support. A few bucks a month is a huge help, and a lot of bucks a month, of course, is an even huger help. We've only been at this a few months, and if support keeps growing, I can afford to keep doing bonus episodes, like the recent ones on the French elections and Trump's tax plan. If you are a dedicated listener, please take the time to make a donation on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. My socialist podcast only exists because listeners support it. It sounds like a canned line, but it's absolutely true. So thank you. Now back to the show. What did you make of um, of the visit Bernie made to Liberty University early in the primary? Yeah, that was that was a complicated one. Um, I mostly feel bad for the students at Liberty University as a general rule because my school <laughs> my school is even worse, and I'm sure many of them are not too happy at all with follow support for Donald Trump. Um, I don't blame Bernie for going. Um, I think it made sense for him. I mean, why not go, I guess, because there are a lot of kids there who wouldn't consider themselves Republican and who might be, you know, sort of more amenable to the things that he was saying. So it kind of made sense. But it was a very strange spectacle to watch. I will say that. (laughs) You uh, shifting gears deeper into the religion uh, subject, you worked for Americans United for the separation of church and state, which fights the religious right on behalf of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause, among other things. Mm-hmm. How do you see fighting theocracy as fitting into a broader left politics in the U.S.? I mean, it's absolutely part of socialism, this idea that we should have a secular government and the separation of church and state. I mean, I think it's always been part of it. And I don't, I, I think, like, support for a weakened wall of separation of church and state or, or, or like a... Um, it's it's complicated because then like you get into the weeds where you're talking about how much religion uh, influence religion ought to have over public life, and that's way more nebulous. But legally, it seems pretty clear. Um, so I absolutely see that as integral to a left politics as a means of securing liberation for LGBT people, for women who need access to abortion and contraception. Um, I think the surest way to guarantee access to those rights is is through a government that's religiously neutral. Do you think that left can make this case not just on the grounds of where where atheists and God is is make believe, but that um, the separation of church and state was created precisely to protect religious liberty? And so Mm -hmm. if these people are concerned with protecting their religious liberty, then the Establishment Clause is something that they should not be seeking to run roughshod over? Yeah, I think that's really the only persuasive way to defend secularism and the wall of separation, Um, because it it was very much designed to protect the church as well as people who didn't want to belong to a particular church. Um, So it's very very much in keeping with, I think, kind of the original spirit of the Establishment Clause. 
And we can debate all day, you know, kind of whether we need to burn the Constitution and, and start all over. Uh, but this idea of a secular government, at least, I think we can all hopefully agree on. Um, but I, I think, you know, it's if atheists can't make the case for secularism without referring to religion as stupidity or mental illness, like there's just no hope. There's not, And it's not very rational, second of all. Um, I like to remind them of that. But, um, yeah, I think there's a very strong case for a religiously neutral government that has nothing to do with sort of like atheism is the way to go. And if you're religious, you're an idiot. You know, it's really about sort of making sure that people can believe what they want to believe in peace. What's the current makeup of the, I guess one would call it the the, the secular movement? To what degree is it dominated by new atheists and to what degree do organizations like the one that you worked for, mm -hmm. which I believe is run by a Protestant minister? Yeah. Yeah. AU has, has always been run by a Protestant minister um, from a mainline tradition. So it was never quite as much part of the sort of the organized atheist scene, but all of my dealings with the organized atheist scene have been pretty much bad. <laughs> I, you know, there were a lot of problems with misogyny um, racism and sort of this, this domination by new atheist types or people who are at least very antagonistic um, toward people of faith and particularly Muslims. I, Islamophobia has been a huge problem and continues to be a huge problem from what I can tell. Um, so I don't have very good things to say about the state of organized atheism such as it is. Um, I don't know whether that's going to improve. I hope it's going to improve. Um, just because in some places of the country, it is very difficult to be an atheist. And, um, and in some religious tradition, it is very difficult to like become an atheist, let alone convert to a different religious tradition. So I do think in an ideal world, it, it would be sort of the safe place for people um, and provide resources for, for people who are making that transition. But it's just not it's just not there right now at all. Yeah, there seems to be a division in the in the secular United States between people who are non-believers who live in major metropolitan areas and they, if they were ever involved in religion, have become not so much hostile to it, but just sort of indifferent. Um, instead of going to church, they go to brunch. Um, mm -hmm. And in a story I did maybe five years back or something on on the new atheist movement, what what was striking to me is that a lot of people who are involved, because I agree with you, the uh, sort of Dawkins and Sam Harris arguments are really repugnant, politically reactionary, unhelpful. I mean, just the, there's a long list of negative things I could say about the arguments that I make. But what I what I found is that a lot of the people who were very interested in explicit atheist organizing and, and new atheism, new atheism um, grew up more like environments that you did. Um, mm -hmm. And it was sort of like this, this lifeline, however imperfect <laughs> um, of one um, uh, for, for living in, in, in very fundamentalist Christian contexts. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to it. I mean, I, I had my own angry atheist phase and I, <laughs> would kind of dare anyone to grow up like that and, and not be angry. I'm still angry, to be totally frank. I just, you know, got to the point where I realized that I, you know, I was actually objecting to legalism 
And there was no point in becoming a legal estate atheist. Like, there was no point to any of it. <laughs> that was, like, the end result. So I get why people are angry, for sure. Um, I, I've all, my, my take has always been, you know, to make sure that you aren't making the same mistakes that you're running away from. Do you think there's um, new atheism to some degree through organizations that I'm guessing most listeners have never heard of, um, but mm-hmm. they're out there and they have a lot of members, uh, I guess not a lot, but a decent number of members like American Atheists. I went to their convention when I was reporting the story. Um, this is like this kind of infrastructure for people who are moving away from religion and are and are pissed off. Um, and like you say, with with some some reason in many cases, is there um, an opportunity for some sort of political organizational infrastructure to take formerly religious people once they've moved through the extreme anger stage into a more politically productive, less reactionary um, form of form of secular activism? Yeah, I think. I think left politics can be a really good avenue for that. Um, but you're not, I, I don't think anyone should look to organizations like American atheists, especially for that. It's not going to come for them. Like their bread and butter is being incredibly hostile to people of faith. Um, which I would argue that hostility is also antithetical to left politics. Um, so I, you know, I'd be curious to see if, you know, organizations like Democratic Socialists of America, which do have, you know, they do strongly support a religiously neutral government, could be an outlet for people. Um, but I don't know. It's hard to tell how many Americans are even talking about here. Like the polling data is not particularly clear. You have people who talk about nuns, right? They're religiously unaffiliated, but most of those people aren't even atheists. Um, so it's a complicated topic, and I I think everyone should be involved with left politics. But I don't know that there are any atheist organizations out there right now who are who really have any sort of interest in channeling that anger in a more constructive direction. I think it's pretty antithetical to their reason for being. I want to shift gears to something else that you've written about recently and which I discussed with Adam Johnson a few weeks back. And it's one of my favorite uh, topics to discuss, which is um, why the New York Times op-ed columnists are so horrible. (laughs) You wrote um, Brett Stevens referring to the newest addition to the op-ed page who came from the Wall Street Journal and made his debut defending global warming denial. You wrote that Brett Stevens isn't the only problem with the Times editorial page. Mm -hmm. He may not even be the biggest problem. Mm -hmm. At a time when the smart opinion journalism has become, when smart opinion journalism has become a necessity to counteract the lies coming from the White House, as well as to offset the deficiencies of impartial journalism, the Times op-ed page is awash in out-of-touch, mediocre columnists who are badly out of sync with the era in which we live. Very well put. Why is it so bad? Not just offensive, but just um, utterly unpleasant to read on a prose level. The prose, I'm not sure I have an answer for. But as for for the rest of it, I think it really is sort of this flawed definition of what it means to be an objective journalist, which, you know, the New York Times has an official commitment to to objectivity. And I think it can result in this really flawed both sidesism, which I think you're seeing in the op-ed columnist. So, you know, we have Maureen Dowd, so we need a Ross to do that. We have Charles Blow, so now we need Brett Stevens. 
the problem is, of course, is that these people are often like just flat out pushing bigotry or they're pushing lies and they, they, there is no real editorial justification for ever doing that. And I, I find it, you know, I think the root of the problem, again, is not so much Brett Stevens, but really a failure of management to think more clearly about what it means to be objective and to have political principles in journalism. One last question, and this one also on journalism. You're the social media editor of The New Republic, a magazine that has been through quite a series of changes in ideology, ownership, and staffing. Mm-hmm. What what does the magazine, what is The New Republic today? What does it stand for? Who does it speak for? Speak to, sorry. That's a that's a great question, and let me couch it by saying I've only been here since August, so I've missed a lot of sort of the big transitions in TNR's history. I can tell you that, like working here now, I would say there's sort of this this commitment to, to publishing a range of voices. I wouldn't say, of course, that it goes like in the direction of sort of the both sidesism that I've been talking about. The New York Times, like the TNR, is a political magazine, so uh, we're allowed to have opinions and publish those opinions. Um, so I would hope it's obvious that, you know, we're not the same magazine that defended the Iraq war <laughs> or or that published Charles Murray's excerpt. Um, that would not happen in TNR now. Um, and I can say as someone being here who is who's obviously more to the left uh, than TNR historically was, that I, I found it a really good place to work, um, really encouraging place to work. Um, so, yeah, that's, those are sort of my scattered thoughts about it right now. I'm not sure, you know, that TNR is sort of like Jacobin and that it has a coherent political identity or occupies a specific, you know, spot on a political spectrum at all. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's committed to publishing a range of views on, on the left. Sarah Jones, thanks so much. Thank you. Sarah Jones is social media editor at The New Republic. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeff Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, where you can subscribe and where you can also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews really help introduce us to new listeners, and so does spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us, and please find us on patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is really helpful. Mm